This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Every year, physics professor Jim Al-Khalili assigns his freshman class an essay on the history of astronomy. He teaches at the University of Surrey in England. And Jim is always clear about his expectations. You warn the students not to plagiarize or copy each other and make sure they check their sources. This year, for the first time, I had to say, do not use chat GPT. <laughs> you know, do it yourself, because we have ways of finding out. So he tells his students, don't use a chatbot. Don't have artificial intelligence write the essay for you, because there's a program, also run by AI, that will catch you if you cheat. And sure enough, running through the essays through something called GPT-0, which sort of checks to see whether a certain paragraph is likely to have been written by AI, something like a quarter of my students used ChatGPT. I knew they had. Jim says fighting back against students using artificial intelligence for some of their classwork will soon be futile as AI becomes more and more present. So we've just had to run with it and um, embrace it and think of different ways of testing our students' knowledge and ability because they're going to use AI just in the same way that I started using a pocket calculator at school to do long division because I wasn't going to do it by hand. Right, and I was going to ask you, you know, a student today might argue and might say to you, well, why should I spend my time writing this essay if this bot can do it in three seconds, right? So it becomes eventually a question of what are the skills that we need to teach and what are the skills that we need to have and which skills are we comfortable with outsourcing? So what would be your answer to that? Why should I write that essay? I think that's a good point. And indeed, why should you? If, if the AI can do it just as well or, or better than you, certainly a lot quicker than you, what else can I do to test you? And I think, you know, we'd have to be more imaginative the students may have to stand up and make some sort of a presentation. You know, they can critique the essay that was written by AI. What do they take from it? You know, what do they understand from it? So we're going to have to find more imaginative ways of educating students, of testing how well they're learning the subject. Whether you work at a university or a hospital or a radio station, lots of people are already seeing the impact of AI on their jobs. As these programs get more and more sophisticated, how will their influence grow? We have to learn to live with that. AI is going to be part of our lives. And if it can do something better than us, why are we uh, beating ourselves up over <laughs> still wanting to do it ourselves? Will it help us do more things, be better or faster at our jobs, or will it replace us? We're going to have to think very quickly about how to put the checks and balances in to make sure that we are still in control. On this episode, artificial intelligence and the future of work. Let's start with the kind of anxious question a lot of people are asking right now. 
Will AI take over my job and make me obsolete? This is not a new question, of course. Every emerging technology has come with fears of big changes, that it will create winners and losers. In the 1980s, lots of people were worried about a looming automation takeover, robots that would start doing the jobs of factory workers, servers, and more. Roger Wakefield was a teenager then, working in a fast food restaurant. One night, a co-worker asked him, what do you plan to do with your life? Are you going to do this forever? Roger shrugged. Yeah, why not? His friend told him, soon, the kind of work they were doing now would no longer exist. In the 80s, we were talking robots are going to take over. And not just in fast food. They're going to do all the manufacturing jobs. They're going to do all the industrial jobs. Roger's co-worker told him to get a job that would be safe. And one of the things my buddy said is, Roger, look, robots will never be able to do plumbing. He took that advice. Roger has had a 40-plus year career as a master plumber, and he hasn't been worried about job security at all. But now, in the dawn of what some are calling a fourth industrial revolution powered by artificial intelligence, will trade jobs like plumbing be affected or threatened? Grant Hill looked into it. There's this super popular video on YouTube by Boston Dynamics a robotics company once owned by Google. It shows a large humanoid robot named Atlas. Atlas is black and white and looks kind of like a transformer disguised as a mini fridge. It's five feet tall and walks on two legs and skillfully navigates a work site, fetching tools for a man in a hard hat. Ah, I forgot my tools again. Atlas seems like a fantastic assistant. It moves boxes, navigates scaffolding, even executes a perfect somersault. Such a show-off. It left me with a question. If machines can move like an athlete and complete all of these tasks, what's stopping them from fixing a pipe like Roger, the plumber? Well, apparently, a lot. People are not necessarily well-informed about what AI actually is and what it does and does not do. This is Nikhil Krishnaswamy. He's an assistant professor of computer science at Colorado State University. My primary area of research is AI and natural language processing. Nikhil focuses on robots or machines that are using language to interact with people. I asked Nikhil what it would take to build a robot plumber like something you might see on the Jetsons, if it was still far off in the future. He said, probably. The models as they exist right now are task-based. That is, I build a model to do something. A robot like Atlas may seem like it can find its way through any construction site and do all kinds of different tasks, but... In those cases, the environment is known beforehand and it's controlled. Atlas navigates environments like a train on invisible tracks. Its actions are carefully plotted out before the camera rolls. That's why most autonomous robots used on job sites today operate in controlled environments like warehouses, because warehouses are predictable and mappable. Once you have the schematic of the warehouse and you know where all the items are located, then you've reduced the problem space down to maybe things like obstacle avoidance. Um, and so that makes it much less hairy. Now, think about all of the different settings a plumber encounters. A cramped city row home with old, rusty pipes. A sleek new condo where everything is brand new. Toilets, showers, kitchen sinks, in all shapes, designs, and from different decades. 
it's not quite sophisticated enough to uh, really cope with these continuous and dynamic environments. And then also there's a question about, like, can we use maybe large language models to assist with this? Large language models like ChatGPT that seem to answer any question lightning fast. They're very sophisticated predictors of what words come next in a sequence. If you ask ChatGPT right now, how do I fix my leaky pipe under the sink? It will spit out an answer in a few seconds. I got a nine-step guide that, I don't know, seemed pretty fine to me. So if you could insert that kind of processing power into a robot that can navigate space, a robot could quickly generate its own bespoke instructions to figure out how to do things it wasn't optimized for. But for trade jobs like plumbing... They really involve a reasoning about space and the body and the world that most of the current AI technologies really are not equipped to do that well. This ability that they lack, it's called spatial reasoning, and it's really hard to model. So spatial reasoning is really one of these capabilities that is very well grounded in people. And interestingly, there is evidence that it's not completely innate and that it is something that's learned from experience. So, for example, there's a, a critical period in the development of young children where their sense of space really develops. And often young children kind of go through this phase where they're like afraid of things like the drain in the bathtub because they don't perceive the fact that it's much smaller than them and it can't actually suck them down. Humans grow out of fearing the drain by learning how to situate their bodies in the world. We take it for granted, but it's actually a really complicated process. Like knowing intuitively that when two people face each other, an object may be on one person's left and the other person's right. Even though this is a fundamental part of our cognition, it's hard to get machines to function this way. Computers require uh, very precise numerical values to do the reasoning. Humans don't. So um, when we're talking about, you know, things in, in the workplace, um, if we're talking about, like, say, someone trying to fix a pipe, there are some rules that you could follow that, like, a, a language model might be able to learn, like, say, turn right to tighten and turn left to loosen. The old righty-tighty, lefty-loosey rule. But that's all going to be conditioned on where you are positioned relative to the object. So, for example, if I'm trying to plug two pipes together and I'm, I have to orient myself in a particularly tricky way, I might actually have to turn the one pipe in a way that is perceived as being left. But that's left relative to me, whereas it's you know, clockwise, counterclockwise relative to the orientation of the two pipes. Another big problem is data. Say you figured out how to get a walking robot into a home and under your leaky sink in the upstairs bathroom. How would a robot plumber know what to do with all the information it gathers from its various sensors? It would have to be trained in all sorts of different scenarios specific to plumbing. So where would it get this information from? You might find this really dumb, but if you would, were to slap a GoPro on like every plumber in America uh, and, and have it capture that data and then send that information back to other plumbers who are in warehouses kind of labeling what they're doing and whether they got the task right or not, would that be a way to do this or would even that not work? I can see that being kind of a plausible way to getting something sort of like a video version of a chat GPT for plumbers. But again, I think we might still run into the problem of once you get into a situation that is sufficiently outside the training data, which could just be, I'm looking at something from a strange angle. Suddenly it's going to suggest something that is incorrect or, or not be able to process the scene. Um, and I think we also might want to ask, like, consider the price of the GoPros, paying the presumably trained plumbers to label this data, 
to say nothing of how much processing power it would take to process the video um, and then generate the output, wouldn't it just be easier to just pay an actual plumber? <laughs> this is why Roger Wakefield still feels his job is safe after four decades in plumbing. The job has just been too complicated for a robot to replace, too human. I think it'll be a long time before a robot can go out into the field, dig a ditch, carry the pipe over, put it together, join it properly, turn the fittings the right way. And am I going to say it's never going to happen? Absolutely not. Am I going to say it's going to happen anytime soon? I haven't seen that robot yet, but the robot that walks into your house and you tell it, look, I've got a sewer gas smell. It's going to be interesting to see how that robot responds, what it does, what systems and processes and equipment that it goes through to set up to determine what that smell is and where it's coming from. That's not to say technology hasn't changed the industry over the years and won't continue to. Right now, there is a lot of consolidation going on in plumbing across the country. Big companies are buying out the little guys. Most of these big plumbing companies, these guys are carrying iPads, they're carrying computers. They're doing their invoicing, they're estimating, they're billing. Everything is done through a computer. If you'd have told me 10 years ago, the computer will be the most important tool you have with you every day, I'd, I'd have thought you were crazy. That story was reported by Grant Hill. We're talking about how artificial intelligence will change the nature of work. Maybe AI can't take over plumbing just yet, but what about other jobs, like reporting for the polls? Can you help me come up with a radio story? I can definitely help you brainstorm a radio story. That's our intern, Alan Hinnage, talking to a chatbot called Pi. I want it to be related to AI technology in the workplace. That sounds like an interesting topic. The chatbot like suggested a story about older workers and how AI is affecting their chances at finding new opportunities. What about a focus on one particular worker who is struggling to adapt to the new AI technology? Something like that? Okay, that could work. Wonderful. The chatbot immediately offered to draft emails, to reach out to people, to be interviewed, but we decided to let the humans take over from there. Here's Alan Hinnich. Susanna Knox worked as a receptionist in law firms for more than 30 years. As the first point of contact for potential clients, it was her job to do things like transfer calls, schedule appointments, and sort the mailroom. The people that I worked with, I, I, I was very fond of them. and It was, it was really nice. I, I loved it. She especially loved to chit-chat with clients, get to know them better. I had a lot of people come into the office, and the first thing they would do, they would hear my accent, and they'd, they'd want to talk about where I was from and stuff like that. It, it's personal. Susanna immigrated from England to New York when she was 18. You know their wants and what they like and what particular tea they like, because, you know, I had clients that liked herbal teas and stuff, and I would set that out for them and whatever. So there's that personal touch. I was there for 21 years. I figured I was going to retire from that place. Then the pandemic came and the office was closed. Susanna started answering calls from her home, but soon after she was furloughed. For nearly a year and a half, she waited anxiously to get called back into the office. All her coworkers had returned, but she was still in limbo. Until finally she got the call that her services were no longer needed. The law firm didn't need a human to answer calls or greet clients anymore. 
the phones were automated. If you call the office, you'd get the recording and they say, if you, you what, whoever you're looking for, you have to look it up at the firm directory. It's like, press one for blah, 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 blah. And you go through this whole spiel. Susanna was devastated and she felt like it was a bad business decision. When you call a business, you want to hear somebody's voice. You know, you, you want somebody to pick up the phone. And I mean, yes, an AI thing is very efficient and stuff, but there they, they wouldn't be that that personal, you know, that that warmth. It's, it's, ma- it's making me think that, like, uh, am I going to become obsolete? Are employers really going to go for that? Are they going to really cut out human contact? They don't understand how it affects people in the long run, because it's like you, you almost feel worthless and useless because, you know, for them to just dump me after this time, I, I felt so, sometimes I would find myself crying in the night. I'm like, why, what did I do? Why did they do this to me? Susanna is just one of more than a million American workers above the age of 60 who lost their jobs during the pandemic. Most furloughed workers did eventually get called back into work, but the recall rate wasn't the same for older adults. Many feel like they were left behind. I think we have to accept something that I think many of us do not want to talk about in this country, how culture informs age discrimination. That's Gary Officer, president and CEO of the Center for Workforce Inclusion. So we often hear the term the great resignation. That's what people are calling the voluntary mass exodus from the workforce that happened after the pandemic. The great resignation did not occur for older Americans. I refer to it as the great sifting out because many older Americans were not recalled back into, into, into their workplace. Many of them are simply let go. Kerry says there's a lot of reasons for this, and a major one is related to advances in automation and artificial intelligence. As the technology gets better and better, more traditional skills will become obsolete. New opportunities and jobs will be created, but Gary worries that older workers just might not be ready for them. By the year 2024, older Americans who are 50 and over will become the single largest segment of the U.S. workforce. We cannot possibly ignore the largest single segment of the workforce from accessing workforce development dollars that will prepare them for opportunities that our economy will be reliant on going forward. We cannot ignore them. But in order to retrain older workers with digital skills, Gary says we first need to address a more fundamental inequality. More than 20 million households in the U.S. still don't have internet service. So if I can't get on the internet to participate in those online training programs. More than 4 million say it's because they can't afford it. So equity comes into play. Barriers informed by location comes into play. And so we have to figure out how we can remove those barriers that prohibits opportunities, that prohibits training. We have an obligation as a society to make sure that everybody has an equal shot at being part of the new mosaic that's becoming our 21st century workforce. Susanna still hasn't been able to find a new job since she got laid off. She feels frustrated and she misses the human connection she used to have with the clients in the law firm. But we left our conversation on a positive note. Susanna, I got to tell you, you have such a beautiful voice. Um, maybe if you look for a new job, you should consider voice acting. Oh, thank you. People have told me that all the time. You need to do voiceovers and voicemail you know, announcements and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I'm, I'm open to that. That story was reported by Alan Hinnich. 
Coming up, AI is already part of many aspects of medicine. So should physicians learn more about the tools they're using? I don't think most emergency room doctors really know how an MRI works, but they use the images it produces very well to make decisions. AI in healthcare. That's next on The Pulse. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about artificial intelligence and how it's changing work. AI is already part of many aspects of healthcare. Doctors use programs that can evaluate scans, help them prioritize cases, even predict the chances that patients will have a particular medical condition. Now, some healthcare experts argue that doctors and med students should learn more about AI so that they have some basic understanding of how these tools work and maybe more importantly, when they don't. Alan Yu reports. I'm in the doctor's office with Chris McCarty, a family doctor in southeastern Pennsylvania. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Good, how are you? He greets his patient, and then he explains a tool he's using. Okay, on this, I use a program called Dragon Ambient Experience, and it basically listens and records our conversation. And then through artificial intelligence, it actually creates the note for me, so I don't have to sit here and document on the computer. Would that be okay to use today? Yes, that'd be fine. He turns on the program on his cell phone, and the rest of the visit proceeds as normal. You're here for um for a well check. Yes, I uh, just a normal wellness check. I get checked annually for my dive scuba diving. 
Chris asks his patient about scuba diving, a knee injury, checks his vital signs and screening results. He is neither taking notes nor typing. The program records everything. It will process the information and a few hours later, it will give Chris organized notes, showing him the things that matter and leaving out the small talk. The company behind the program also pays a human reviewer to check the notes before Chris gets them. The uh, system will group it into the problems that come up. And diving won't be a problem in itself. It might say here for a diving physical, but probably not going to mention that your favorite dive was feeding sharks. Chris has been a doctor for almost a decade now. So he remembers what it used to be like to talk to a patient and listen to their concerns while also trying to take notes. He says this program, called DAX for short, makes his job easier. Imagine you're watching a movie and you're just enjoying a good movie. And afterward, people might ask you about the movie and you've enjoyed it and you remember a lot of the information. Now watch that same movie, but know that right after you're done with it, you have to write a report on that. It's no longer fun to watch. And it's, if anything, it's exhausting to watch. And that's kind of how medicine was before DAX. Chris has been using DAX for about two years. He works at a health system called Wellspan Health, which tested this program with a few doctors three years ago. Now there are a few hundred doctors in the system using it, says Hal Baker, Chief Digital and Information Officer at Wellspan. The billing and documentation requirements of medicine have increased significantly over the last couple of decades. Completing all the documentation is a more complex task than it once was. And the assistance of an ambient technology that can do that faster and faster with less and less human intervention allows doctors and hopefully eventually nurses to get back in doing what they wanted to do when they went into the profession, which is be there with people, connect as humans, and help solve problems. Hal says most of the doctors who tried this tool like it and that the automated doctor's notes are as good or better than their own notes. He says this is a tool. Doctors should know what it can and cannot do, but it is not vital for them to understand the machine learning and language models that make this tool work. I don't think that's necessary. I don't think most emergency room doctors really know how an MRI works, but they use the images it produces very well to make decisions. AI tools are becoming a bigger part of medicine, and some of them manage more high-stakes tasks than note-taking. That is why some medical students and medical school faculty think it is important for doctors to learn more about artificial intelligence and to understand how these tools work. Erkin Oatless is one of them. He's in medical school and also working on a PhD, focusing on the use of artificial intelligence in medicine. Erkin has an engineering background and wants to help bridge the divide between the engineers that make software and doctors who use it. They're scared of them because they don't necessarily know how these things work. They don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about them because they're not equipped to be able to talk through these things. He says it is important to talk about AI and take a closer look at these tools. As an example, he brings up one of the projects he worked on with a team of other researchers. 
hundreds of U.S. hospitals use an artificial intelligence tool that tracks patient health records to predict how likely it is for them to have sepsis, an extreme and sometimes deadly response to an infection. Two years ago, Eric and his team found that the tool was only accurate about 63% of the time and would also overwhelm doctors with false alarms. The company behind the tool changed it a year later. Erickson says the lesson here is that doctors should know more about how to judge the quality of these tools, which means they need to know in broad strokes how the underlying technology works. He points to a comment on Reddit discussing what he and his team found about the sepsis tool. They're like, "Yeah, I'm a doctor, and I've seen the outputs of this model. And I, I like, I knew it was bad. Like, I didn't need this paper to show tell me that. Like, it just doesn't work for me. And that was like very striking to me that like there was there was a physician out there who sort of based on their experience." Knew that it wasn't working for them, that it wasn't providing value. They sort of had an assessment of it, but they were not empowered to be able to say, "Hey, this thing isn't working that well. We need this to be addressed." The Food and Drug Administration has already authorized more than a hundred medical devices that use some form of artificial intelligence. And Erickson says, just as doctors know how to read the data behind a drug trial and decide whether that drug is right for their patient, they should understand these software tools. And then I know how to look at that paper and then look at the patient in front of me and be able to assess. Oh, I think this drug would actually work well for this patient, or it wouldn't. Was this patient even studied in that paper? Right, like, do their demographics match the demographics of the study population? If not, then I know it, this might not work well. All the AI medical devices the FDA has reviewed, the vast majority are used in radiology. Jessica Sin is a radiologist at the Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. She is also the vice chair of research of radiology and teaches at the Dartmouth Medical School. And she says it is important for medical students to learn the basics of artificial intelligence. She worked with students to develop a course on that. In this day and age, I think if there is a residency curriculum or a medical school curriculum that isn't making an effort to expose their students or trainees to some of these tools and how to appropriately apply these tools. And appropriately evaluate these tools in terms of like, well, if I'm going to go into practice and I have to decide, is it worth buying this tool or that tool? Then I think it's really a kind of a disservice to the student or a disservice to the resident. She says doctors need to understand the nuances so they can use the tools properly. For instance, she says her hospital system and the few large radiology practices use a program that can detect scans of patients for specific problems like bleeding and spine fractures. The program then tells the radiologists which scans to read first, so they can save time. Jessica says the company sells this as just a tool to help radiologists spend their time better, not a tool to do actual diagnoses. But in order to work, the program has to be able to do some diagnosing. That's kind of a tricky tightrope that everybody's walking. Right? They're going to get FDA approval for a certain type of tool for a certain type of use, but in practice, people are kind of using it for things that are. 
adjacent to what it was it's officially approved for, officially what it's supposed to be used for. And she says that matters because while the program can detect some serious problems, it cannot detect all the thousands of possible problems a patient could have. And radiologists need to know that. She says after developing the introductory course on AI for radiologists, she has learned how computer programs can lead to unintended consequences. It turns out that I think a lot of these algorithms are less smart than we thought. That story was reported by Alan Yu. Jack Singh is hopeful about the future role of AI in medicine and in our lives. I am an eternal optimist. I'm a cautious optimist, for sure. Jag is a cardiologist and a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. His new book is called Future Care, Sensors, Artificial Intelligence, and the Reinvention of Medicine. He says AI could lead to better and more personalized care, like when he's checking a patient for heart conditions. Just to give you an example, you know, one can now look at a surface electrocardiogram, just a 12-lead surface electrocardiogram, and actually predict which patients are going to develop atrial fibrillation or which patients will develop other heart rhythm disturbances. It can also predict which patients are at a high risk of sudden death or, or what their heart function will evolve to over time. What's the data the AI is using to predict that, to make those predictions? What can it see that humans might not be able to see? Right. So if you look at the ECG, they say there's some 37,000 data points that the machine can see that the human eye cannot. And so these are deep neural network algorithms that have to look at millions of ECGs And then the information they gather from those ECGs are linked to an output, and they're then able to construct an algorithm that allows it to predict what an ECG then would show us. So that's where the whole machine learning component comes in. It's where the machine learns from the data in a way that the human cannot and can actually interpret that and predict the potential for a disease or other other things happening. And now I'm thinking about mammograms, you know, routine screenings for breast cancer. And I'm wondering if the algorithm could make similar predictions there, that even if the mammogram looks normal today, the machine might see something that my OBGYN does not. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, there are studies that have already shown that, that the machine can pick up early findings in the mammograms that the human eye cannot see. And there was a recent study that was published which showed that hybrid approaches, that is approaches where the clinician alongside the machine can make a diagnosis which is actually better than the machine alone or the clinician by themselves. So the potential for AI in the early detection of cancer is not just from, you know, the mammograms or the images, but even the pathology reports and even the data can be screened by AI algorithms that can help us predict or, or what we say is provide precision medicine. And then if you start looking at, you know, genomic data and molecular data for precision medicine, that's such a lot of data that only the machine can actually look at it and, and give us uh, the impression and, and predict disease better than any of us humans can. If we turn toward direct patient care, 
Do you see a role for AI there? You know, I'm, I'm just thinking about how we interact with artificial answering services or those types of things. And as, as humans, we usually don't like that. And you hear people say, I just want to talk to a human. <laughs> or you'll even get a message like, talk to real humans, which I find pretty amusing. But, you know, I just I can't really see this in patient care just yet. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think it's going to be so important for us to maintain our human touch when we look after patients. Now, ha having said that, you know, there are chatbots that, that can actually screen symptoms and actually help triage patients more effectively and reduce the burden on clinicians. There was actually an interesting study that studied the empathy Uh, differences between a chatbot and, and a clinician for answering routine questions. And then they found that actually the chatbot did better than, than clinicians for answering simple, straightforward questions because it had a higher empathy element out there. So as much as I think as medicine evolves that there needs to be an integrated approach between the human touch and the digital touch, there will be certain areas at the back end, at the level of the administrative tasks, at the uh, level of really kind of collating information together that I think the chatbots and the AI components will help. What do you think could be the role of AI in research? I was thinking about, for example, the early days of the pandemic, when a lot of researchers were looking at medications that we potentially already have that could come into play in treating COVID-19. Is this something where, again, AI could do the, the heavy lifting of sifting through, through all these studies? Totally, totally. So, so there's this whole, you know, intersection of AI and drug discovery and development. Machine learning can sift through tons of genomic and biomedical data and can help better identify drug candidates. And not only that, can actually predict the effectiveness uh, of drug designs and drug candidates far better than we could do in the past. If we think about research, drug development, treatment plans, all of these things where AI is undoubtedly going to play a bigger role, there's often a concern that human biases, human prejudice makes it into these algorithms. So Are you concerned that the algorithm would perpetuate some of the issues we already see in medicine? Oh, that's a really good question. And I think that is one of the biggest problems of uh, AI algorithms, because you can generate an AI algorithm in one part of the country looking at a certain set of patients with a large number of patients, but you may not be able to use the same algorithm in another part of the country because the ethnicity and the diversity there is quite different. As a result of which, I, I think it's so important that the data sets that are used for developing AI algorithms are unbiased and are, are large enough that they are attributable or generalizable to other areas of the country and potentially to the world too. And to allow that to happen, I think it has to be a very conscious effort for the folks who are developing the algorithms. They say, they say actually that, uh, you know, you have to ensure diversity among the data scientists who are curating and annotating and developing the data sets, because you can get bias happening at that level itself. So uh, it's really important to kind of make sure you're not, you know, missing that step and not ensuring that the data that's coming in is unbiased. 
In his book, Jag also talks about how sensor technology and virtual care could complement AI in the future, creating advanced around-the-clock care. Could there be a future where I'm wearing sensors where data about my health is sort of being fed in real time somewhere and then evaluated by AI and then I sort of get an alert, you know, your cholesterol is high or your heartbeat seems irregular, <laughs> your weight is up, that kind of stuff. Totally, totally. I think that's what the future actually is. So let me take a step back and, and really, you know, uh, state that the current form of clinical practice is very transactional, right? We see our clinician every three months, every six months, every 12 months. But you and I know that, you know, we don't fall ill at those intervals. Illness can occur anywhere across that time period. And it is having the development of continuous surveillance strategies that can actually provide continuous care uh, in a more personalized fashion. Uh, and this is where sensors really come into play because sensors can provide information continuously. That information can then be uh, analyzed by the artificial intelligence system in conjunction with the clinician at this point in time and can then send an alert to the patient to decide whether the intervention actually has to be done by the patient themselves or potentially by the clinician. I think for healthcare to be sustainable in the future, there has to be this self-management approach. There has to be some skin in the game for patients because otherwise it is becoming unmanageable for clinicians to manage the you know, discrete data of every patient. It's almost like an automobile equivalent where you have sensors that look at which are organ-specific. They get the data out, and if something's out of whack, the patient gets an alert, and then the patient can decide to get in touch with the clinician and or make some simple algorithm-derived changes to their treatment or to their lifestyles to uh, adjust and adapt and make sure that they're treating themselves well. Get an oil change. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I guess a lot of it to me is about how all of this is framed and how we think about it. You know, if if I think about AI as a tool that is in the service of of humans, where we use the tool where it makes sense and we do the stuff ourselves where humans are better, <laughs> then it's not so threatening. But when it appears that AI is taking over or it's taking the place of people or it's just a way to save money, it's making things less personal, less caring, that's when it feels awful. Yeah, I think some of that is also in the messaging of mm -hmm. how AI is being used. Um, and I completely agree. I, I think uh, there are many tasks um, that AI cannot replace humans, at least not in the near or long-term future, at least I, I think so. You know, there and in medicine, I, I don't think AI can ever completely replace the human touch. I, I think it'll always be augmented intelligence for medicine where therapies and, and treatment strategies are always developed in conjunction with the clinician and not independently by the AI system itself. Jack Singh is a cardiologist. His new book is Future Care, Sensors, Artificial Intelligence, and the Reinvention of Medicine. 
Coming up, how AI is used to monitor workers' mental performance. So there's a company called SmartCap, and they've been selling a technology to companies worldwide already that allows employers to track the fatigue levels of employees like commercial truck drivers or miners or pilots. That's next on The Pulse. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. The Bullseye Podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun. This message comes from Wondery. For a masterclass on innovation and creativity, listen to How I Built This, where host Guy Raz talks to founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. Listen to How I Built This, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about artificial intelligence and how it will change our jobs. So far, we heard about AI's role in trade jobs and as a tool in medicine. Now let's turn to how artificial intelligence could be used to monitor and evaluate employees. Nita Farhani is an ethicist who studies the implications of emerging technologies. Her new book, The Battle for Your Brain, focuses on neurotechnology that can record and interpret brain activity using AI. She spoke at the World Economic Forum in Davos earlier this year, and she presented an animated video of what office work might look like in the not-so-distant future. And it starts with a person sitting at their desk, and they have brain sensors embedded into their earbuds. You're in the zone. Even you can't believe how productive you've been. Your memo is finished, your inbox is under control, and you're feeling sharper than you have in a decade. They're listening to music, and they're focused on their work while their brain activity is being decoded in real time. So I'll just start by saying, that's technology that's already here. 
In the video, the employee is doing great. Her brain metrics look strong. She's blazing through her to-do list. Then her mind starts to wander. She starts to fantasize about a colleague. And then gets worried that her employer, who's watching her brain activity, might notice her amorous feelings. And that violates their office romance policy. So this is a made-up scenario, but Nita says some employers have started to use neurotechnology and AI to track brain activity, headbands or caps that put sensors on the skull and can pick up brain waves. Employers are already monitoring brain activity of employees for fatigue levels and starting to do so for attention and productivity scoring, which can be really chilling. On the one hand, sure, it would be nice for me to know when am I really focused and when am I not focused? Is there anything that I could tweak to have more focus at work? But I certainly don't want my employer to to be watching that process. Right. I think that would not be good. So right. are, how is that happening already and where? So there's a company that I talk about in in the book, which is called SmartCap, and they've been selling a technology to companies worldwide already that allows employers to track the fatigue levels of employees like commercial truck drivers or miners or uh, pilots. And they're collecting very little data right now from employees. They overwrite what's called the raw brainwave data that they're collecting on the device itself. And the only thing that they give to employers is a score, one to five, about whether a person is tired or wide awake. Um, And that's being used for kind of safety monitoring of both society, but also those employees. Other companies are selling technology to enterprises and they're offering to them the possibility of tracking attention levels. And that could be given to employees for them to use themselves to improve their focus or to figure out how to, you know, kind of get into the zone. But employers in other countries are already using it. After that talk I gave at Davos presenting this, a CEO of a company came up to me and said, hey, we're, we're using that already. We've already trialed it out on a thousand of our employees and we're planning on selling this as a product to our customers for skilling and for, you know, being able to figure out policies like where do employees work best from home or in the office and are they bored or engaged? And in China, it's happening where factory workers and, you know, train conductors are required to have their brain activity monitored throughout the workday. And, you know, there are even reports of them being sent home if their brain metrics don't meet the kind of standards that have been set. Am I able to outsmart this device? You know, I mean, if I'm thinking about a lie detector test, you know, and some people... I mean, they didn't really work anyway, but then also (laughs) sometimes people learned how to control those or how Mm -hmm. to control themselves not to have a response. So do I have a chance against this device to fool it somehow? Well, let me give you the happy and the sad answer to that. (laughs) (laughs) The happy answer is, you know, if you're in a big machine, like a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, and somebody's asking you a series of questions or showing you images to try to interrogate your brain, yeah, you can employ countermeasures. You can think about a giant pink elephant the entire time or you know, focus on something in your field of view that distracts you from whatever they're trying to show you to probe your brain. That's the happy answer. The more challenging answer is the future that's coming is 
not a future where you know you're you're hauled into a police station and somebody puts a headset on you and interrogates your brain. The future is one where you know the brain sensors sort of disappear from view. They're part of the technology you're already using. They're embedded in your watch. They're embedded in your earbuds or in your headphones. They're the way you're interacting with the rest of your technology. And you know, you're taking your conference call and you don't even notice that your brain activity is being monitored at the same time. And images could show up on your screen that you don't even notice, but that could be probing your brain for information or for recognition. Nita says, as we encounter more neurotechnology in our daily lives, there are some critical questions we have to ask. What's being collected? What is this? What are you analyzing? Who's going to have access to the data? And if they don't have good answers to that, then don't do it. (laughs) You know, just say no. If your employer asks you to wear it and they don't have, you know, a very clear policy that's written down and explains exactly what they're collecting and how they're going to use it, then you know, collectively join together and say no. So I I think it's, you know, taking a very hard pause on quickly adopting and assimilating what is a brand new and novel category of technology that presents both unprecedented possibility, but also unprecedented risk. Nita Farahani is a professor of law and philosophy at Duke University. Her book is called The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. On the TED Radio Hour... In the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness. And he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. 
We know that race is always relevant and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR.